Pixel Sift is proudly supported by Murdoch University School of Arts. Have you ever thought to yourself, I'd really love to learn how to make something creative like a game or YouTube channel or a new report on the news? Well, you should have a look at what is on offer at Murdoch University. They'll give you the skills to hit the awesome creative goals you're aiming for. Keen to learn more? Have a look at murdoch.edu forward slash arts to find out what they've got on offer. That's murdoch.edu.au forward slash arts. Or you can search Murdoch University for more information. Murdoch University School of Arts, proudly supporting Pixel Sift. Pixel Sift. Hello and welcome to Pixel Sift, the show dedicated to indie games from around Australia and the world. My name is Scott and joining me tonight is my co-host Gianni. How are you today, mate? I am going fantastic. I'm very excited for this episode. Um, we're going to learn a lot uh, about our, our guest today. Undoubtedly. Uh, and joining us this week, of course, is our guest, Dr. Dan Goulding, senior lecturer at Swinburne Uni, host of ABC Classics Screen Sound and composer for many games such as Untitled Goose Game, Push Me, Pull You, and The Haunted Island, a frog detective game. Thanks for joining us, Dan. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on. <laughs> so we're really looking forward to learn a bit about uh, how you put together the music for these games. Um, we're also going to ask you a lot about uh, being a games academic and looking into screen culture and all of that sort of stuff as well as being a radio host and author yeah. of multiple books. <laughs> so many talents, so little time. Let's get into it. Hey there. If you're enjoying the show and you want to hear more, subscribe to Pixel Sift on Apple Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Spotify, or listen on pixelsift.com.au. See you there. So tonight joining us on the show, we have Dan Golding, academic writer, radio host and composer. But first off, we thought we'd talk about some of the composition work that uh, Dan has done. Now, you will probably be aware of some of the work. Push Me, Pull You. Definitely if you've been Island. watching Pixel Sift. Definitely if you've been watching Pixel Sift. The Haunted <laughs> Island Frog Detective game uh, and Untitled Goose Game. Now, Dan, can you tell me why did you want to compose music for games? You could have composed for or anything really, but what is it about games that you really love composing for? Yeah, that's a good question because in my, I guess, academic work and at least my radio work, I've more done like uh, film music uh, and, and TV to some extent, um, but my actual like musical practice has been pretty much 100% games. Um, so it's kind of funny that it turned out that way. I guess like I've always been interested in, in music for the screen in all contexts, and then kind of just got the opportunity to to make uh, some music for games. Push Me, Pull You was the first soundtrack for, for a game that I did. And, um, you know, that was just such a unique and fun project. And I, I, think, I think what I love about writing for games is it gives you, I think, a little bit more freedom um, to work with really different musical palettes, um, which is definitely true for a bunch of the games that I've, that I've done. Um, but also, I think... Um, this is a little bit of a weird thing to say, but it's less uh, rhythmic than screen, uh, like film, film and TV music. How so? Well, so I've done some music for uh, some film. Uh, I've done music for some documentaries that a colleague of, of mine has made, which has been a lot of fun. But for me and like, you know, reading interviews with like John Williams and other composers, film composers 
like, you know, one of the first things they do is figure out what the tempo is of a scene, you know, what rhythms, what beats the music has to hit, you know, because it's locked in. And you do get that in games with cutscenes. But actually, a lot of the games that I've worked with haven't really been cutscene heavy. And so, it's been more about like what texture goes in here, what what do we want the player to feel, um, what, we, what do we want them to be thinking about musically, do we want them to be listening to this overtly or actively rather than I've got to make this track 127 BPM so that on the third beat of the fourth bar, we can hit that emphasis point, you know? So, it's a little bit different, I think, um, in terms of just the mechanical way of composing. So, I think that games actually, weirdly enough, gives the composer a little bit more freedom. So much of, I guess, film is kind of tied to to format and frame rate. And is that yeah. part of the reason why you think there's that that strong link? Because they know how many frames are going to be yeah. and yeah and with games you don't really have to that no absolutely yeah and look there are different types of composing for film i mean uh, a composer like ennio morricone would write a lot of his music first before a single frame was shot and sometimes they'd play the music on set um and so that's an entirely different way that actually i think in some ways is more similar to game music but, you know, the John Williams school uh, of, of writing, which is such a huge part of particularly American cinema. Um, but, you know, I think, I think a lot of cinema in general really follows that, you know, frame by frame lock. Um, I mean, if you, I, you probably um, uh, can see with like, I'm sure I know the, the, the Western Australian Symphony has done a few of the, the film live concerts where mm. they play the film, they put the film up there and they play the Yeah, they do the live. Star Wars and they do Harry Potter and all that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah, so I've been to quite a few of them here in Melbourne because um, me and some colleagues do the pre-concert talks usually when they're doing a film, uh, film performance. And the conductors um, have a little screen on stage because usually there's no like in ear click track or anything like that. What they have instead is a screen that shows them the beats of the bar counting and also um, what are called pops, which are like literally flashes of light mm. in the middle of the screen that keeps you in tempo. And then it's like Guitar Hero. They've got um, these wipes, that, these bars that go across the screen. And as soon as it hits the end, you know, that's your that's your moment where you've got to reach the hit point. So, it can kind of be like, okay, yeah, speed up. Okay, yep. Okay, great. Good. <laughs> we hit that one. Now we can keep going. Um, so, it's so, you know, it's so rhythmic, so based on tempo and games as I said, can be like that, but I don't think are really fundamentally like that in the same way. So, I think that that's, to me, that, you know, that's something that I've learned through composing, which is interesting. I don't necessarily think I would have figured that same conclusion out just from, well, being an academic. So, I'm really glad that I've got to kind of get my hands dirty and, and, and you know, see how all that works. Is there a bit more, I guess, heritage or I guess the... Like maybe even like the uh, composing baggage of, of of a history of film versus a history of games as well. I know we're starting to see these sort of you know patterns sort of emerge in the way that soundtracks appear for games, but you know there is a lot longer history of film than there is games at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, the whole reason that um, uh, films in particular have that orchestral sound is because composers like uh, Max Steiner and Eric Korngold, they were, you know, Viennese pioneers. They were superstars of the Viennese sort of um, opera, ballet, orchestral um, scene. Uh, and they, 
emigrated to the United States. Um, in fact, um, uh, Korngold um, said that Robin Hood saved his life because he was Jewish and he moved to America to write the music for the wonderful possibly my favorite film ever, um, uh, Adventures of Robin Hood from 1938, uh, and, you know, was then able to basically leave Austria before the, the Anschluss and the, the sort of, you know, the Holocaust. So, um, but he and Steiner and a bunch of other composers, Franz Waxman, brought this old, old world, literally old world tradition of orchestral music um, with them that taps into Wagner and, you know, Mendelssohn and all these great writers um, who had figured out how to write for opera in particular, but also ballet as kind of like, I guess, what we kind of call program music, right? Like, so, you know, music that accompanies a narrative that is told some other way usually, right? And kind of transplanted that tradition to uh, film. And you get that particularly with like um, a lot of early animation and stuff like that too. People pejoratively and still today kind of pejoratively call it Mickey Mousing where it's like, you know, the character walks up the stairs and it's dum, 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 and they fall down and it's like, you know, (laughs) Um, where the music is so tightly locked with what we see on screen. And I think that has a lot to do with this older tradition as well. And certainly repurposing that, um, I think for a lot of us, the first time we would have encountered opera um, would have been through Looney Tunes cartoons, for example. So I guess speaking about that, though, talking about things being locked to screen, a lot of the work that you've done for games like Untitled Goose Game is actually reactive yeah. to that performance as well. So it is actually sort of being dynamically changed. Can you tell us a little bit about that and, and how that's sort of different to what you would see sort of on, on a screen there? Yeah, yeah. Film? So uh, Untitled Goose Game is is a really, really dynamic score. Um, and that is the first I mean, we've done we've done a little bit of that for um, uh, the Push Me Pull You menus, where each of the menu space in Push Me Pull You has a different version of the main theme. It's the most complicated menu music ever. It's way too complicated. Uh, but uh, and there's a little bit of dynamic music in um, the new Frog Detective, actually, um, which is not yet out. But Goose Game has easily the most dynamic music um, that I've done. And it's down to a kind of like, you know, we're talking every one or two seconds sometimes uh, in terms of the game making decision about which version of which phrase to play next. Um, It was a kind of incredibly interesting and fraught trial and error process where basically we knew what we wanted the ultimate effect to be was to be like you had a silent film era pianist in the corner watching you play the game mm. and kind of playing these Debussy preludes because all the music in the game is um, Debussy's or my adaptations, arrangements of them, um, uh, which is, again, another really unusual thing for games. Uh, and, yeah, just having that kind of the energy of each piece react to what you're doing as a player. Um, and to me, you know, the reason, the whole reason that we did that is because there was a, um, a trailer that we put out and it, uh, you know, people assumed that the music was dynamic when really it was just the trailer was well edited. 
and so we all kind of sat down and was like, actually, I guess we better do this dynamic system because that's what people think is in the game. But none of us, no, nobody who worked on Goose Game, none of the four house house guys, nor me, really knew how to do that. I think we sort of saw dynamic music as a big, um, you know, those old maps with like here be dragons. Like that was <laughs> that was our understanding of how dynamic music worked. So it was uh, it was a long process of trying to figure that out. Yeah. Uh, thanks for watching Pixel Safety. If you're just joining us, we're talking to Dan Golding about his wide career as a game academic author and radio host. Uh, just touching on what you were talking about there, Dan, uh, using Debussy's um, Prelude Number no. Twelve Minstrels for much of the music in the game. Um, I read somewhere. I read in on the Verge that you ended up splitting the song into about four hundred stems. Um, that obviously need yep. to kind of be able to dynamically, again, touching on the dynamics of the game um, or the, and the score, need to be able to kind of work together continuously or at, at any given time. I mean, how, how do you pull that off, um, <laughs> both as a composer and uh, as a, I guess, a, a sound designer as well? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, yes. <laughs> so, basically, basically, there's two different performances of that prelude. There's one which is more or less what you would hear if you put on a performance, uh, you know, from a CD. Uh, and then there's one which is way low energy. It's like everything is quite soft. A lot of the phrases are drawn out. I think it's a good almost like two minutes longer than the, um, than the, the, the original version that you would normally hear. And basically, yeah, so those two performances are both cut up into around 400 phrases with each phrase being the same kind of chunk of music, just the different performance of it. And uh, yeah, so like basically, I guess in a way we're quite lucky that it's piano because piano naturally as a player has sustain. You put down the sustain pedal, it creates that kind of, you know, reverb. So basically what we did was we got each of those like two second uh, stems and, you know, just made sure that the reverb plays out on each of them so that if you play one and then you play the next one after that, it just sounds like they've held down the sustain pedal rather than two tracks have been put together, two, two stems have been kind of forced together because, you know, it can be going between the two different performances at any given time. Um, there's practically infinite different performances of it. So it was a matter of- How do you of- organise that though? What did you use to kind of break them down? Is it some sort of system to or it's naming bre- like- yeah. To break it, to, to, to do that split with 400. Yeah, so, like how do, you, how do you even think about 400 stems in, in one particular thing <laughs> and make that actually into something that can be put into a game that can be done programmatically? So we, so we started off basically I split up the piece of music as though you would if you had sheet music. So if you were being a musicologist and identifying each phrase, I did that. And that was about 65 stems and that was just not enough because some of them were like eight seconds long. So, it meant that you would do something kind of sneaky as the goose and then you would get chased but like the music would still be sneaky for four seconds and it just would feel, it felt wrong. And so, like I kept trying to break it down and break it down and break it down and I was kind of following all my music instincts. Mm. Like you can't split it in the middle of the phrase, like you just can't, you know. And in the, in the end, I just, I honestly, I brute forced it. I just mm. set my program, which is logic. I was like, I basically set it to split the entire thing up into every two beats. Right. So, 
yeah, I just like in the middle of notes split and, you know, and then, and then went through and like, there were a few ones which sounded terrible. So I kind of stuck them back together again, but basically just totally brute forced it. Um, and I am as surprised as anybody that it ended up working. Um, I fully expected that to be a total, total train wreck, but, uh, it was it somehow, uh, kind of, kind of came together. Um, yeah, incredibly. <laughs> what what did you learn from that process that you know you wouldn't do at the start of that that now if you were going to do something similar you would you know start in a completely different sort of way? So I mean, I think the big thing for me is that dynamic music. I remember we got this tweet from um the guy who does the music for Minecraft where he read that article where I detailed kind of what I've just detailed to you. And he, his tweet was kind of like, wow, I can't believe it's using this system. I thought it was like some incredibly complicated, like wise MIDI, you know, the game actually creating the music on, you know. Mm, because like it had samples you know, there and it was going yeah, in. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was like, um, what did he say? He was like, um, you know, uh, the, the, the use of dynamic music was, was super complicated and intimidating. And I was like, intimidating for the guy who did the Minecraft soundtrack? Yeah. <laughs> like, I... It's just kind of mind-blowing to me because we knew nothing and we just kind of figured it out. And so, I, the the big thing that I learned is that actually I think that's how everybody views dynamic music. You know, there's not somebody sitting there going like, dynamic music for games. Yeah, I know exactly how to do that. You know, that this, this is a skill set that I have that I am going to absolutely be able to, you know, figure out whatever dynamic system you need. It's like, I think... I think dynamic music is still just being figured out by everybody. It's, it's you know, it's not like there are best practices or, or set systems. You know, there are a few ways that probably people are pretty good at by now, but I think, you know, for each game, it's kind of different. So, I would say, like, don't be scared of dynamic music. Like, it's it's possible, you know? <laughs> it's, it is a little bit confronting, though. I mean, coming from sound background myself, I remember f- the first time I, kind of, I had to do work in FMOD, and just mm. trying to get yourself out of thinking about music and audio and sound in general in a linear fashion is what yeah. was one of the hardest hurdles for me to get over, I think. And I think that's why a game like Untitled Goose Game is so impressive to other people that dabble in sound because it's just, it's almost unfathomable. <laughs> but, you know, fantastic. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, it, it, like it is literally unfathomable in terms of the amount of time uh, like the in, in terms of the amount of possibilities, like just that first that first prelude, and there are <clears throat> um, five in the game that are dynamically, um, you know, in, treated in the same way. But just that first one, it's like uh, one with fifty two zeros after it. Possibilities um, for performance of just this, like what is it, like two and a half minute track usually, which is just incredible. Yeah, it is unfathomable. Yeah. You know. <laughs> I don't know, just as much as anybody else in the world. I don't know what's going to come next. I mean, I know what notes are, but I don't, you know, everybody has their own performance, um, which is just so cool, I think. <laughs> has, has it been inspiring for you as well? As you said there, you had the, the person who composed the music for Minecraft kind of say, well, oh, I thought you were doing it this particular way. To see yeah. people kind of puzzle out the way that it had all been put together, is that inspiring for you? Yeah, it, it is, but it's more fun to just see how people create these perfect little scenes. I have quite a few little clips saved to my computer of just like 
little clips that people have posted, especially to Twitter, where it's just like just like a 20-second bite of gameplay where the music just in that moment perfectly like lines up. Yeah, it just just tells you the story, you know. You can shut your eyes and you can kind of hear what's happening just as 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 well as anything else. And so to me, like, because there actually, I don't think you know. I think there were a few tweets, and and that that Minecraft guy was like one of one of them. But there wasn't like a lot of trying to figure out how the music worked, and more just kind of like, you know, people having fun with the music system and kind of having fun at seeing what kind of little musical stories they could tell so that to me has been really really good like nothing makes me happier than see somebody post like a little 20 second snippet where it's just like the music works perfectly so (laughs) do you think of the game as an instrument for people to play this music yeah i think so to some degree it's more like they're playing with a performer i think because you know it it, there's not enough flexibility or control for the player to have choice yeah exactly but it's more like they're working in concert with it no pun intended (laughs) yeah um yeah which is which is nice you know that they're you know and that's kind of i think you know with the exception of a very few um amount of games that's kind of how i feel as a player like i'm working with it i'm not controlling it but it's kind of a force that i'm working with it to create cool music if the if the system is dynamic you, you mentioned that you're starting to include a little bit of that in the sequel to The Frog Detective. Um, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about how that's kind of coming together? Yeah, yeah, sure. So it's relatively simple, um, but basically, uh, so the, the next Frog Detective is called The, the Case of the Invisible Wizard, a uh, great title, as was The Haunted Island. Uh, and uh, there's been a few little demos, and I think there's a trailer, so it's not particularly giving anything away, but... Um, the main kind of area is like a little village where there are lots of different um, uh, inhabitants all with their own little houses and locations. And basically all, all we've done is just set up a really nice little simple system where there's a background kind of jazz track, a jazz bed of, of drums and, and bass. Um, and um, quite similar to the first game, um, but there's a different instrument that's kind of improvising depending on who you're talking to or which area you're in. Um, and so it just gives a little bit of an identity. Um, so hardly hardly the same level of complexity, but I think, mm-hmm. you know, for a kind of musical bed, which will be there for a lot of the gameplay, it's just a nice little way of giving everybody their own musical flavor and also mm-hmm. just breaking things up for the player's ear. Um, which can get quite monotonous, you know, if you're not careful. Um, mm. well, we um, what? Uh, sorry, Scott. Go, go on. Gugiani, please. No, I was just going to say, what do you, when you listen to other people's uh, music in games or anything really, what, what do you find inspiring in that sort of stuff that, you know, what makes you want to make more music? I love it when people have their own palette, you know. I think in games, like, as we, as we were talking about at the start, like there's fewer rules and fewer traditions and so i really love it when i hear a composer who's kind of like obviously not gone into a project wanting to work within you know the genre that everybody else does like you know has a, who's maybe gone into a first person shooter and is like you know okay i'm not going to do the usual like drums and synth and like mournful solo trumpet you know like uh, i'm gonna do something a little bit different and like you know i still think that there are a lot of a lot of 
games where you hear people pushing against that and kind of, you know, doing their own thing and finding their own musical palette and working within un- unpredictable genres. Like, I-, I love that. That to me is incredibly exciting. More than any technical thing, it's like bringing in things that I haven't heard in a game before. Yeah. Do you have a, a good example of that? The one that you really thought stuck mm. out in your mind? Mm. Um, uh, uh, yeah, actually. Um, the Rayman iOS game. Like, ah, I love the soundtrack to that. I think it was just fantastic. So unexpected, like this kind of vibrant jazz, like a little bit of um, gypsy jazz in there as well. Like, yeah, some unexpected stuff. Also, uh, the Australian made uh, De Blob. Um, Yeah. Yeah, like great soundtracks with a lot of the members of um, the Bamboos, the funk band. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah, like it's just like that's a solid funk album, you know, Mm. both one and two for that game. And, like, it just, more than anything, it sounds quite Melbourne to me because you had the Bamboos and at the time you kind of had, like, the Cat Empire and a bunch of other kind of, like, bands that were doing this kind of brass jazz kind of thing. And so for a game that, like, was about a, a, a paint blob in, in a kind of fictional urban city, but it was made in Melbourne, it, like, made way more sense than, like, I don't know, somebody trying to write Mario-esque sounding music or something, you know, like whatever else might be in there. But, you know, I think you you hear that all the time, even even the example Mario, you know, like one of the reasons I think why that soundtrack that everybody knows and loves in games is so eclectic is because, you know, with 8-bit, 16-bit sounds, you couldn't have that kind of textural difference. So you had to use weird and unusual genres like sambas and waltzes and merengues and you know like all these strange like ragtime you know like Mm. rhythms um that you know still stand stand out in people's memories today because they're kind of forced to by that that lack of um musical text you know like a piano didn't sound like a piano so you know Mm. (laughs) um so I think that's kind of always been there in, in games to some degree. I just, yeah, that that I love about game music, yeah. If you're just joining us, um, we're talking to Dr. Dan Golding. We're talking about composition of uh, games like Untitled Goose Game, uh, Push Me, Pull You, and Programmatic Music. Dan, you wrote in your book, um, Game Changes, talking about mm. uh, a moment you had uh, when you were first studying your PhD and you were yeah. at a party and someone else's oh. mum was there and you, yeah. you found out that she was studying a PhD and you thought you might have this shared experience, um, yeah. but it didn't go that well. Can you tell us a little bit about when you told her that you were studying a PhD in games? <laughs> yeah, wow, that was a while ago. Uh, she was, yeah, I, as, as you say, I was expecting maybe some kind of solidarity because like everybody who's doing a PhD has like a weird esoteric subject. That's just how PhDs work. Yeah, um, yeah she was reduced to like actual fits of laughter when I told her about games and like her husband came across the room to kind of like remove her from the conversation because he realized something weird had sort of gone on. Uh, So I guess that was her response to the idea that you could write a PhD on games. Yep. Has that changed? Great question. Uh, I think to some degree it has, but it really depends on the circles you're in and I think probably the generation too. Mm. Uh, she was of a older generation and I'm still not entirely confident that if I spoke to someone of her age, not to, you know, dismiss people of that, there are plenty of great, sure. even games academics um, of who are older, but I think in terms of a general rule, 
I wouldn't be entirely confident about making the same anecdote at a party uh, and mm. not getting the same response. But I think in general, like, people are a little bit more on board with the idea that, you know, if not you can study games in an academic context, then at mm. least th- that games are kind of just a part of culture, you know? Mm. How do in you introduce yourself in a, in a pre-concert talk, say, at the MSO? Uh, well... See, I'm usually for a for movie. I imagine you can probably say right. That's probably the right. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. But- well, I'm also usually introduced by my colleague Andrew, who hosts the podcast that we do about film music, and he so he's usually the host of those events, and so he usually has an array of extremely silly introductions. Uh, I think at one point he introduced me as uh, one of Tatooine's uh, number one moisture farmers when we did uh, the Star Wars uh, <laughs> pre-concert talk. So I don't think there's a lot of seriousness in those <laughs> yeah. introductions. Um, but yeah, I do, I do take your point. I mean, in general, like I think that the doctor goes a long way in front of my name. Uh, but, you know, at the same time, like, you know, people are going to think what they're going to think. And I think, you know, it's more about, winning them over through the content of the talk rather than a, than a particular title or, or, or job description, you know? I, yeah. <laughs> the main premise of your book is kind of looking at sort of identity in play, mm. people who play games. Um, mm. Can you tell me, we see these things that as recently as, you know, almost last week when the most recent Pokemon game came out, um, there was this really loud group of players who completely dominated the conversation but were not representative really of the people who have been purchasing that game that sold 6 million yeah. copies and they were talking about boycotts and stuff. What do you think about that now in the context of, of writing that book in about 20, 2016? Yeah, I think probably when I wrote that book and certainly when, um, you know, Gamergate first kicked off in 2014, I think I was probably more prone to see the louder voices as more indicative of than they actually are. I think today, especially because, you know, my, my, my other book is on Star Wars and so I go into a little bit of detail about, you know, the boycotts against those fil- boycotts against, you know, Star Wars films, like some of the most financially successful films in the history of the universe, right? It's sort of like actually, you know, to what extent is this an incredibly tiny group of people who are just really loud um, and also like I think now pretty well versed in how to use social media effectively? And I think also to some degree now there is, I think, the parameters of these kind of internet debates are so well laid that Certain websites and not even certain and, and and not even like certain people, and I'm not saying they're necessarily acting in bad faith, they're just so well prepped for it, that they see like an announcement of something and they go looking for, you know, the person who's like, oh, this is just for, you know, social justice worries or whatever. And like it maybe actually ultimately it's like six people. But you know, you get a you get a news article. Uh, with those six tweets and like suddenly it's a thing, you know, and like I feel like now, you know, it's kind of almost hard to get out of those those cycles. Like, you know, like when um, 
the last Jedi launched and and um there was that person who did like the I can't even remember what they called it, it was like the you know the de defeminized edit or whatever where they yes. cut out the women and it was like 40 minutes long or something and it's sort of like it's not clear to me that that wasn't a parody to begin with because it's so ridiculous it is so ridiculous and it's hard to imagine somebody sitting down and spending hours of their lives doing that seriously and look maybe they did but it's just sort of like i'm kind of interested in how to break out of these kind of because like we know right in december probably someone will uh when 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 the um the uh the rise of skywalker comes out probably somebody's gonna have gonna say something pretty you know ill-informed on social media and like do we do we talk about that or do we talk about other things you know do we try and find what is representative of a larger response or, you know, or, you know, not even Star Wars when the next game comes out or whatever, right? Like these are just reoccurring patterns now. So I think, yeah, certainly in terms of how that's changed since I wrote the book, yeah. What do you think about how game companies and I guess film uh, producers kind of position their their property for for ownership of fans? Like they rely on that. They rely on those super fans. What position does that put them in when they people feel this entitlement towards the the artwork? Yeah, yeah, games especially. I think films, to some degree, have for whatever reason. Maybe it's just simply because they're older, um, or perhaps less. You know, took them longer to be engaged with the fans through the internet, etc., than games. But I mean, like games especially. I mean, you have those sort of marketing campaigns where still Sony taps into this idea of like literally like the slogan of "for the fans," you know. Um, and you know, I think, uh, gosh, you know, you could go back to Mass Effect Three and that kind of capitulation to to making something more acceptable for the fans. Or, I mean, I suppose maybe maybe the Sonic example is one where that's happened as well, though. Yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah, that's yeah, I was just about to say in terms of well cinema, but I suppose to some degree crossover with with games, but yeah, it's yeah, it I I think it's it must be hard for them to gauge again how real this is and like how like is it actually people being outraged or is it just like some loud people in the case of Sonic I think probably they did successfully gauge that this was a genuine widespread reaction to that trailer um and like yeah I think it's tough because I uh, you know game culture especially spent a lot of the 80s and the 90s being attacked by the outside right politicians, mainstream press, whatever, you know, games are violent, dumb things for dumb people. You know, that's the, that's the line that, that I think it was very easy to feel sensitive to as a self-confessed game fan during that period, right? It was just relentless. And there was very little example of any kind of meaning ascribed to it. And so I think because of that, games companies, you know, probably fairly reasonably, um, decided to kind of bunker down and 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 tap into and help create a game culture that was about interiority that was about feeding this kind of yes we're gamers against the rest of the world 
kind of a tribalism sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. And, like, you know, there are very good reasons for that. But I think in the end it's created this environment where, like, games companies are really, um, you know, they especially the bigger ones feel really beholden to their fan base and, um, you know, the, the, the games press, I suppose, and kind of the, the very, very tight and very reactive relationship between all those different factors that it's really hard to break out and really hard as well, I think, for creators to say something meaningful, you know. You get all those interviews where, like, of course the director of, I don't know, you know, Call of Duty, whatever, is going to say this game isn't isn't political because, like, we see what happens when they admit that, like, yes, obviously, to the rest of the world, the game is political, right? You know, like, everybody knows that. But we have to pretend like it isn't because we know what happens when they admit that it is. So it's, you know, I think it's um it's a really tough thing. I don't know. I don't envy any game company. You don't, don't have the solution how. for that particular no. conundrum? <laughs> not really. Yeah. It's like a it's like a terrible diagnosis that I offer and not much of a solution. <laughs> where where do you think the good conversations are happening around games? Uh I mean, look, I'm I'm increasingly optimistic about these kind of conversations around games. I think that still, you know, there's a lot of reasons to be pessimistic. I think, you know, great games creators are lost to the industry year on year through burnout, through um, instability, you know, not having jobs, through bullying, through harassment, etc. But at the same time, you know, like I think there are some really, really great stuff that's happening around independent development. Um, in a lot of different countries, I think there's a growing realization that every nation has its own kind of, not even every nation, every city kind of often has its own independent games culture, particularly in Australia. You know, I think Australia has such a unique games culture. Um, Brennan Keogh, who's a researcher at, at QUT and a sort of sometime games critic, um, you should get him on the show. He's fantastic with this kind of stuff, you know, like he's just done a fantastic, uh, huge research project talking to game makers all over Australia. And I think the way that he's broken down where we are as compared to uh, Canada, which is often we're compared to, is sort of Canada seen as aspirational. But, you know, he's very good at sort of saying, well, like Canada has its own problems and strengths, but Australia has its own strengths. And, you know, if we're going to build a games industry here, we should look at what we actually already have rather than trying to create something that doesn't exist here. And so I think that kind of honesty and realization that, you know, games culture comes from people and places, that's so exciting to me. And I really hope that we see more of that built into into great stuff. Yeah. It's an exciting time, um, and I'm sure, Dan, we could talk to you all night. Um, yeah. And we, <laughs> yeah. we just, I feel like we could have this conversation for a really long time, um, yeah. but we will have to wrap it up. Uh, so if everyone is keen to, to hear a bit more uh, of Dan, you can hear him on ABC Classic uh, for the Screen Sounds program. Uh, you can find him on dangolding.com or Dan Golding on Twitter. There's two books you've got, uh, mm-hmm. a book that you wrote with Lena Van Deventer uh, uh, called Game Changes, which looks yeah. at the sort of identity uh, around gaming and also that sort of question around Gamergate as well as Star Wars After Lucas. Dan, thank you so much. It has been fascinating and a real pleasure. 
My pleasure. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah. Not at all. Absolutely. Like Gianni said, I think we, I could listen to you talk forever. <laughs> but unfortunately, <laughs> I just that is, talk too much. No, 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 not at all. You're perfect for this show. <laughs> unfortunately, that is all the time we have for today. Uh, thank you for watching or listening to episode 136 of Pixel Sift. This episode has been hosted by myself and Gianni. Thanks for joining me tonight, Gianni. It was amazing. Thank you. It was. Pixel Sift is produced by myself, Sarah Ireland, Fiona Bartholomeus, Mitch Lowe, and Gianni Di Giovanni is our executive producer. We wouldn't have been able to make 136 episodes of Pixel Sift if we didn't have the support of Murdoch University. Go and check them out and tell them we sent you. If you're keen to learn more about a great creative degree, head to murdoch.edu.au forward slash arts. That's murdoch.edu.au forward slash arts. As always, we'll be sticking links to topics we talked about in the show notes on our website, www.pixelsift.com.au. And you can come join us on Discord. We'd love to have you there. You can have conversations like we've had uh, tonight. Uh, that's on pixelsift.com.au forward slash Discord, where you can share your creative work. Maybe you're working on a game. Maybe you've made some music and talk about the topics of games or anything else. So that's pixelsift.com.au forward slash Discord. And if you like what we do, can I ask you a favor? I'd love for you to go to your friend's phone and subscribe us. Um, we've got two podcasts now. We've got the Pixel Sift podcast you've just listened to and a brand new one that we launched this week called Mainstream, which looks at AAA games and some of the bigger high-profile titles. Um, they're both on all your podcast players, but if you can tell them that you think we're good and that we should give us a listen, we'd really, really appreciate it. Yeah, tell us that we're good. We love it. Our next episode <laughs> will be on the 12th of December. And if you join us the next week on the 5th, Wait, that doesn't matter. On the seventh, we'll switch it around. It's yeah, fifth yeah, yeah. new episode, so <laughs> next week next we've got week, a brand new episode. Fifth, on twelfth, we'll do. If yeah. you join us on the twelfth, it'll be exclusive to plays where we play some of the indie games that feature on our show. That is all for this week. Thank you for joining us, and we'll catch you next time. Hi, Pixel Sip listeners. My name's Ben. I'm one of the hosts and the Dungeon Master of How to Win Loot and Influence Dragons. It's a Dungeons & Dragons actual play comedy slash storytelling podcast. That basically means I sit around with some of my best friends, these idiots, and I am your first mate, Jackson Usit. Thomas Horatio Hornblower Owen. Whoa. Grace the Kraken Chapel! <laughs> and we play Dungeons & Dragons together. Everybody roll initiative. We're going in here. Mine's 11. 19. That's a two! <laughs> Telling a collaborative fantasy story whilst trying to make each other, and you, laugh. I feel like we should include that and just see if we get away with it. Oh, I'm definitely going to include that. <laughs> <laughs> we explore a world known as Carthus, and we try and balance the rules-heavy D&D actual play stuff with storytelling, comedy, and fun. If you're into nerdy stuff, or if you're just into good friends hanging out, you'll probably like it. We're quite close to the end of our current story. And it is one continuous narrative, so if you're looking for a place to jump in, I'd recommend listening to Chapter Zero at the very start of the feed, which gives you a bit of background and some ideas for places to start with the show. That's How to Win Loot and Influence Dragons from the Curio Network. Check us out wherever you get your podcasts or at curionetwork.com.